and welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some of your favorite people from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, come together to talk about all things movie-related. My name is Connor. I am joined today by Sam, Dave, and Christine. Uh, We are in the thick of it with fighting and the families that fight. I'm really excited to dive into my pick today, which is some people might say is a bit of a stretch, but for me, it feels fairly appropriate to this theme. But before we dive into the film we're talking about today, um, how's everybody doing? Has anybody seen anything, movies or TV shows recently that uh, they want to talk about or they have thoughts on? Uh, I saw two new movies this past week. Um, I went to theaters at the Ritz, uh, my favorite theater, and was in the big room, which is really exciting. But it was for um, Wes Anderson's new film, The French Dispatch. Uh, trailer made it look really, really stylized, really interesting. A lot of plot lines, a lot of through lines, and a whole lot going on. Uh, went to see it and was pretty underwhelmed personally. I think I may have just sort of hit my wall with him. Uh, I think since he's, he's worked less and less with Owen Wilson, strangely enough, as far as writing, um, he has become a more bigger scope in his storytelling, but smaller scale in his characterization. And I think that was his real strength in his early career. So uh, for me, yeah, it's, it's just waning a little bit. The set design and production is pretty incredible, but uh, on the whole, yeah, it didn't do it for me. Uh, but did also get a chance to see Mass. Um, that also a new film uh, that was just recently released. That I think thus far has been uh, the best picture I've seen this year. Uh, it's really, truly devastating. Um, the the essential quick rundown would essentially be that it's, it's a room, it, it's all shot. And aside from like a few establishing shots here or there or, or some brief cutaways, but no flashbacks or anything, all shot within one room, uh, kind of like a, a rec center area of a church where there's a table set up and four chairs. Two couples come in, uh, one, the parents of a school shooter who, within the context of the school shooting, also killed themselves. And uh, the other two parents of one of the victims who are appearing there to have a healing conversation rather than taking it to court because they already have a lot of suits against them and so on. Uh, but it's devastating. Uh, really, really wonderful, though. Um, I think it handles that material in a very humanizing way on both sides um, and doesn't politicize it very heavily. It really doesn't talk too much about mental health v. gun control. It does a little bit, but just a bit. Uh, it's really more just about these characters and their separate but uh, strangely unifying grief. And um, I thought it was a, a real knockout and uh, a difficult movie to watch. I was watching it through tears for like an hour, but it was really uh, phenomenal. I totally forgot that that film was coming out. I think when it premiered at some film festival earlier in the year, I was like, oh, like this sounds really interesting. So glad to hear that. I don't know if enjoyable is the right word, but certainly was a film worth seeing. Yeah, a film with uh, a lot to say about um, the sort of... Uh, the feeling of helplessness in the face of that, that sort of uh, rather common American tragedy. Two movies, two new movies. What are we, 2019? Uh, Sam or Christine, have you guys seen anything noteworthy or things you got feelings about? I haven't really seen anything new. I've been on a Tom Hardy kick, so I've basically just been doing his filmography, which has, you know, led me to gems like Warrior. So it's been a fun time. I watched a movie... Uh, <laughs> Last night, I sort of like split it in half because it was like 
it wasn't boring. I like overall, I liked the movie. It's called Lawless. It's with um, him, Shia LaBeouf, Jessica Chastain, and a few other people. It's about prohibition in Virginia. Um, it's it's pretty interesting. I just hate Shia LaBeouf so much in it, and in, I don't particularly like him in general. But also, Guy Pierce plays like a dastard, like like a, a terrible character, um, and he does it really well. So I, I've been like thinking about it almost all day. I finished watching it last night. So, you know, I guess that's a mark of a good movie when it keeps keeps you thinking about it. But other than that, I, I've been rewatching The Dark Knight Rises. And at any point, at any in, in any day, um, what's going through my brain is, I am the League of Shadows. So, you know, um, it's a it's been a rough couple weeks. <laughs> How do you feel about The Dark Knight Rises overall? I really like it. Um, I'm not like a, a big <laughs> Batman kind of person. Um, so maybe that's why I like it. I asked because, Dave, this was, I think, one of our first conversations about like things to do with like a movie podcast, like years and years ago, was, and we were talking about your rewrite ideas for The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, God, I don't remember what that is anymore, but... <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that movie is uh, that movie. Tom Hardy's interesting in it. Um, Sam, have you seen Bronson yet? Ooh, no, yeah, it's on my out. list though. That one's wild. Is it? Yeah, it's it's him uh, at full steam and the center of attention the whole time. The way it should be. Uh, I haven't watched any movies, just TV. Uh, finished what we do in the shadows. So good. It's just I've basically just been watching comf- comfort. TV. And yeah, as that show does every season, just a rollicking good time. And then so many what the fuck moments. And it was a perfect conclusion to a season. Won't give any spoilies (laughs) for fans out there, but it's great for spooky season. I feel like that show has been on my list since I first heard about it. And the movie, I haven't seen the movie or the show. You gotta get on it, Connor. No, That's your I homework. <laughs> Forget like every home. other life obligation. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds like the best homework ever. I've been watching a few things, but I really just wanted to talk about uh, Dune. Finally saw it. Saw it on the big screen. Big fan. I'm someone who likes the book quite a bit. Um, so. I- I was eagerly anticipating this one. Sad that it got delayed, but happy that I was able to see it in theaters. Um, and overall, big fan. I feel like I don't have anything new to add to the conversation. Like, looks great, sounds great, acting's great. Um, the ending is a little like, okay, like we're waiting for part two. So I'm happy there is officially a part two. And one day in the future, I'm going to love sitting through uh, both of these movies back to back. And I think it's going to be a pretty excellent ride. Yeah, hell of a movie. And uh, kudos to you for seeing it in theaters. I think I might even, I think I might try to go see it in IMAX because I just saw it on the regular screen. So if I have some time in the next few weeks, I think I'd be down to check it out in IMAX and just let it wash over me. Uh, for anyone who lives in Philly and has been to the Franklin Institute, they have their IMAX screen is like a giant dome bubble. And so I'd be very curious to see what Dune would be like on the Tuttleman screen. That would be, I saw Inception there and that was pretty, pretty intense. Uh, yeah, I saw Dunkirk in IMAX there. And I feel like for Dunkirk, the gl- the rounded screen was quite perfect where you could see the seams of like the panels 
way they meet. But I think for any other movie, I think it would be kind of distracting and kind of like, I want this pristine picture and yet I'm looking at the squares of this dome screen. But for Dunkirk, it was dope because you, especially with the uh, with the air perspective and it really looked as he's flying in the air, uh, Tom Hardy is flying in the air. Uh, you really feel like you're in the kind of cockpit with him. But um, yeah, I I gave that like, a thought as to where to see I'm Dune and IMAX, and I was like, mm, probably not going to do the Franklin. But it is a cool, it is a cool room. Connor, what did you think of Tom Hardy in Tuttleman <laughs> in Inception? Oh my god! Oh my god! That, that is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Tom Tuttleman. Um, I think Tom Hardy. It's been a. I saw Inception three times. I may have told the story before. I saw Inception three times in theaters with three different friend groups. And I think that movie's perfectly fine. It gets worse every time you revisit it, I think. It but totally means, does. You are so right. Yeah, I think that movie just gets worse every single time you watch it. Uh, but I, Tom Hardy's good, from what I remember. I don't think he does a whole lot. He's just like one of the, the sidekicks, right? He has kind of wears a nice suit. Yeah, wears a nice suit. He has. I remember he pulls a gun out of thin air. That's like his thing in one scene. Uh, but... I would love to go back now and see a Tom Hardy movie with his big face on the top of the screen. That would be pretty awesome. Well, enough about the Franklin Institute. Enough about the Tuttleman. Enough about Tom Hardy. We are ever really <laughs> enough. <laughs> Today we are jumping into a similarly titled movie um, that we talked about last week. We are discussing 1979's cult classic, the Warriors. Uh, Sam, I believe when you were telling people that you were watching Warrior, folks were thinking about this movie, correct? Yeah, every every single person I mentioned it to, they went, Warriors! I was like, <laughs> I don't know what this is. I don't know what this means. Uh, I love that story because that there are so many iconic moments in this movie and it's such an interesting movie and one that I watched for the first time about four years ago um, with some some friends from work came over and then we watched the Warriors and then we also watched Red Dawn uh, together so that was an interesting double feature but this movie has really stuck with me and when we were thinking about when I was you know thinking about what film to pick for family and fighting I like the idea of this kind of gang, this found family, um, kind of surviving together and fighting their way through New York. Uh, upon revisiting the family themes, I don't think are quite there as much, but this is still, I think, a really fun movie to talk about. And even if it is a bit of a stretch, uh, I'm really excited for this discussion and to hear um, what you folks kind of thought about it. But before we jump in, I just wanted to give kind of a brief synopsis, you know, brief kind of just what is The Warriors? Uh, it's a 1979 action movie, uh, which was directed by Walter Hill, screenplay by Hill and David Shaber. And it's based on Sol Urich's 1965 novel of the same name. It was released on February 19th, 1979, uh, had a budget of about $4 million, and its box office gross was about $22.5 million. So pretty successful. 
for this, you know, kind of smaller film. Um, the film centers around the titular fictitious New York City street gang who must make the journey of about 30 miles from the north end of the Bronx to their home turf on Coney Island in Southern Brooklyn uh, after they are framed for the murder of a respected gang leader. So it's really a film about survival. It's a film about fighting um, and how this core group of gang members slowly get picked apart one by one until they, you know, spoiler alert, finally make it back home. Um, it's sort of, you know, playing around with some, you know, Greek themes, big epic themes, uh, some interesting characters, a lot of action. Um, and so before we kind of, you know, kind of jump into the plot of it, uh, how, what is your guys' experience with the Warriors? Who has seen it before, who's never seen it? Um, and just sort of, you know, thoughts on the movie, revisiting it this time or watching it for the first time. Uh, I would have seen it for the first time in high school and was a very big fan. Uh, it's a movie that I return to maybe every like two years, I'd say, because it just sort of slips my mind for some reason. Every once in a while, I'll remember The Warriors and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's a good movie, right? Um, and then I go back and watch it and I'm like, fuck, this movie rules. I should be watching this way more often. Um, I really enjoyed rewatching it for this. I think it's a very of era film in some regards. Uh, which, of course, I'm sure we'll probably touch on. But in in every other regard, uh, really holds up as an almost like it, it, it could stand shoulder to shoulder, uh, strangely enough, around 1979 with something along the lines of like uh, the George Miller's Mad Max franchise. As far as world building, as far as character definition, as far as uh, placing you within an insular and very focused perspective of the world that it creates. Um and a world all its own with characters and scenarios all its own. So I, uh, I think it's a, a really great movie. I love all those you know points you brought up about the world. Like I love the design of this world, the costuming, the music. I think so much of it does a really great job to draw you in. And that's Walter Hill. He's, he's great at that in general, whether it's his Westerns or if you go and watch uh, something like Streets of Fire, which is sort of like a heightened version of this. It's a musical, which is fantastic. <laughs> So going off the uh, idea of musical, I had seen Warriors before and had sort of enjoyed it, but sort of like, uh, it felt like it dragged and I was like, I okay, I get it. But I also had watched Warriors around the same time that I watched Hair, another wonderful 1979 traversing across New York and fucking shit up movie. But unlike Warriors, Hair has like a musical number every 10 minutes. And so I think that I was what, what I was wanting from Warriors was like, oh, I want it to be a musical, like Cats. You meet all these new characters and each of these groups have a song and like all. And I, I think the narrative arc actually could lend itself quite well to being a musical. But I re rewatching it for the podcast, I really, really enjoyed it for what it was. Even though I wanted it to be a musical, uh, I thought uh, it, yeah, it once again takes you across New York. I think it, the movie uses the uh, subway so well uh, and the way that all of the shots and fights are, are, are blocked and shot in the subway makes such a such good use of a space that I don't think is often really, really highlighted in movies. And maybe I'll take back that broad generalization because now I'm thinking of a lot of movies that are feature the subway. But anyhow, 
a movie was so enjoyable and uh, and didn't drag like I had remembered it. I was like, oh, wow, this is like a tight hour, hour 30, hour 40. And uh, and the final sequence and the final shots on the beach are so beautiful. So I, I thoroughly en- enjoyed this rewatch, even though it wasn't hair or a musical. <laughs> it's funny that we've been bringing up musicals because apparently um, Sol Urich wrote the novel as a response to West Side Story romanticizing gang culture in New York. Um, so it's funny that, you know, this that's sort of, interesting. You know, this, the book that this movie's based on was, in, you know, in response to a musical. I'm not, I'm not quite sure if I can go into that thread any further, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, some of the Sam. shots on the street. Oh yeah. Reminded me of West Side no, no, Story. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 No, no, I'm done. When I read the synopsis, I was like, so it's like West Side Story. So yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, I watched this movie for the first time last night. I did not know what to expect other than maybe possibly a version of West Side Story and enjoyed it, but was left speechless by the end. I think that I even texted that in the group chat. Um, I think like three minutes into the movie, I had already said, what? the fuck um and I got a half hour in my roommate came downstairs and was like what are you watching and I was like I have to show you this scene I have to show it to you I, so I rewound it all the way to the beginning and just watched that half hour again because I couldn't believe what I was seeing <laughs> so I it's an enjoyable watch definitely I love point to bring up Sam that resonates a lot with how I feel about the Warriors and what everyone's bringing up is that it feels like it has a lot of tricks up its sleeve and that it never is quite doing the same thing twice um which I think is you know, a really compelling part of the film I really enjoyed this movie this is one that I've kind of been batting around to talk about on the podcast for a while and so I thought this would be kind of a, a good time to throw it in especially after talking about Warrior so I'm sure people scrolling through our podcast feed in the weeks and months and maybe years to come will be confused about two movies <laughs> back to back with the same name. All right. So for the Warriors, I was about to call it Warrior. Uh, I thought this would, it would be fun if we sort of went through a synopsis of the film and sort of talked about some of our favorite moments as we're going through it. Um, I just thought that would be a really good way to approach it. So we open up as night falls over Coney Island where Cleon, who's played by uh, Dorsey Wright, uh, who's the leader of the Warriors, meets up with eight of his most trusted lieutenants and travels, you know, to travel by subway to the faraway Bronx from Coney Island. As I mentioned, that's about uh, 30 miles. I looked it up on Google Maps today. That's about a two-hour public transit ride. Uh, They'll be attending an event called by a man named Cyrus, who is described as the one and only. Um, And throughout the city, other gang delegations are seen entering the subway in their full colors. And as the warriors speculate about the event during the subway ride, we learn that Cyrus is the leader, the largest gang in the city. Um, The Gramercy, the Gram? Gramercy Riffs. Am I saying that right? Gramercy, yeah. The Gramercy Riffs. Huge gang. A huge gang. And he has called a truce on all the gangs in New York. He wants an unarmed delegation of nine people from each gang uh, to come to this enormous meeting to hear what he has to say. Some of the warriors are excited. Others are more skeptical. What do we think of this pretty exciting opening scene? 
where we kind of have, you know, montage, you know, discussions about this meeting, subways kind of going back and forth and getting on the subway, these other gangs. What are your sort of thoughts on the opening of the Warriors? Well, one thing I will say is in your uh, intro to the movie, you're like, well, I don't know if it quite fits the family theme. But in fact, I feel like this movie is 100 percent family. It's like found family and all of these different families who are about to join together and initially for a a truce, but ultimately to just fight each other. But um, I love how the movie begins to lay out not only each uh, sort of cohort, but also the dynamics among them. You've got the leaders, you've got the followers, you've got, you're starting to like piece together how each of the members of, of the gangs kind of relate to one another and the roles that each one play a la family. Yeah. Interesting in that regard too, especially as regards our introduction to the warriors through this sequence. Uh, and it's a dazzling sequence visually. It's, it's a lot of very quick cuts. Um, it's very high energy and it's editing and it's pacing. And uh, we get the sense of uh, Cleon, who it, it appears at that point is probably our protagonist because he's speaking to each individual warrior as their leader. Uh, we get a lot of energy from James Remar, who <laughs> I adore. Uh, we talked about him in Quiet Cool. Uh, he's in a, a dozen of, dozens of other great films and is really, really a treasure. Um, and it seems like he's going to play a bigger role in this than he does. We get a little bit of a sense of Swan, who is a character that essentially becomes, uh, surprisingly enough, given his presence in this opening montage kind of becomes the protagonist um or at least their leader so yeah a lot going on in terms of um not only quickly and like very stylishly establishing this context and this situation but also our understanding of the warriors and their dynamics uh as far as each other and their roles in the gang having a gang of mimes is quite honestly one of the funniest things I could ever possibly think of and what that's like the third gang that they show um the second outside of the warriors I lost my mind when they popped up on screen so I really enjoyed how creative the the gangs were because like you see so many different ones and they all have their like unique quirks. You get the the baseball faces painted, whoever they are. The baseball furies. The baseball furies. You get the the guys on the roller skates. Amazing. I I love all the fun gangs. And I think kind of introducing it here sort of sets up what kind of world we're in. Like we're not in something that's very realistic, which I know seems to be a goal for the film. Um, and actually the, you know, director, right. You know, they wanted to, um, have it be all people of color in the gangs. Uh, but the studio is like, no, no way we're doing that. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of inspired some creative decisions to have it feel. And I was watching some behind the scenes interviews, make it feel like a little pulpy, a little comic booky, um, was sort of, yeah, Dave, let's get something to say. It almost reminds me of like Alex and his droogies versus that other gang in like a clockwork orange. Like it's a reality where mm-hmm. there are these gangs that are uniquely identifiable because of their their dress and like their signature, which like isn't, you know, atypical. I mean, like, you know, a, a gang having their colors and everything, but it's heightened to such a fantastical and an exaggerated degree in this movie that it's so comical, but so convincing because of how steeped you are in that world in, in, in a way that demands that you take it seriously as a reality 
which is really, really fun and really playful way to handle this. It's also really interesting too that there's no discussion as we uncover what these gangs are about of what their criminal activity is necessarily. Like it's just sort of, it does feel very West Side Story. Like this isn't about like, you know, uh, the the early 80s, like uh, or late 70s, like drug problem or like, uh, or anything like that. It's just, it's just sort of people that dress up and want to beat the hell out of each other over their territory. And I, we'll get to this scene later, but I think you bring up a great point, especially when the warriors meet the orphans and it's sort of these like unspoken rules and the way that they uh, sort of uh, try to uh, like create sort of an armistice. I mean, it's just like all of this like world you building. Have no permit, you have no parlay. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll get we'll get that's one of my favorite scenes. I think this opening just does such an effective job of bringing me into the world and you know, for all the other reasons that we brought up. Uh, and we actually see one of the characters tracing the outline and looking at the map from how do you get from Coney Island by public, you know, by subway to the Bronx. And so just kind of highlighting this enormous distance that they have to cover. Uh, at Van Cortland Park in the Bronx, uh, the meeting is well attended with over a hundred gangs represented nine people each, so there's like almost a thousand people here at this park. Uh, the charismatic Cyrus, played by Roger Hill, takes the stage and delivers a spellbinding speech. He says that instead of fighting over each other's turf, they could unite and form an army of 60,000 soldiers, compared to the only 20,000 police in the entire city. And he punctuates his points with, Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you and to the crowd's wild response outside the meeting area the and outside this meeting area you know we see police also kind of moving silently in this is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie um cyrus this larger than life figure a man with a vision wants to unite the entire city you know the gangs in the city um to overthrow the police to overthrow the government um, and he borough by borough, yeah, <laughs> taking over New York City, and everybody is loving it. Well, almost everybody is loving it. Uh, most of the crowd is enthralled with Cyrus's vision, but one member has his own agenda. Luther, who's played by David Patrick Kelly, is the psychotic leader of a gang called the Rogues. He snuck a gun into the gathering, and at the high point of Cyrus's speech. Luther fires, killing Cyrus instantly. When he falls back, there's a brief stunned silence followed by pandemonium. The crowd was uh, so fixated on Cyrus that really nobody knew uh, who shot him. But Luther turns to see that Fox, one of the warriors, um, witnessed the assassination. And so he tries to kill Fox uh, just as the moment that the police come and blind Luther. I just got to give a shout out right away to David Patrick Kelly. Uh, for his performance as Luther. He is absolutely fantastic. Um, and behind the scenes, they and Luther is more or less like our main kind of antagonist as the entire city kind of descends on the warriors. His direction was sort of play it like, you know, Richard III, which I think was kind of interesting direction of this kind of like maniacal, um, cowering sort of, you know, person, someone, you know, kind of clawing. I kind of, that's what I think of when I think of Luther. Just what an interesting character and what a fantastic performance and what a way to kind of kick off the movie. Any thoughts on, you know, kind of Cyrus and, you know, this really huge moment, the big inciting incident in the film. You just I mean, knew something was going to happen 
but what exactly it was going to be. Like, I thought the cops were going to be a little bit more involved than they ended up being. Like, I thought that they were going to be the the catalyst of it all. But the cops, like, they do play a part in the movie, but, like, barely, barely. Yeah, it's a hell of a speech. And, I mean, this is, it, it's immediate the way that it's so apparent that this movie it's like it's something that I said to you guys in the group chat. It's like this and Fury Road are two shining examples, maybe the ultimate examples I can think of of how important it is to storyboard a movie because there's so much momentum to where your eye is drawn. Like when the gun is being passed through the rogues and over to Luther, we follow it entirely until we pan up and see him for the first time. It does this really nice, it's kind of like slight zoom when he pulls it and fires. There's a really tasteful use of slow motion throughout this movie. And every shot kind of feels like something like out of a comic book panel. It's And it is that meticulously planned with this visual momentum that is so striking. And I think really pronounced in this sequence. Uh, also, speaking of Luther, yeah, uh, David Patrick Kelly, he's a treasure in this role. He's such a weaselly, horrible villain. Um, just such a snotty, sniveling kind of dude who's, who's really, uh, you know, uh, taking advantage of every situation that he can uh, with his own uh, own agenda. And uh, it's also uh, pretty famously in uh, Sully in uh, Commando, another movie that we discussed. Sully, remember what I said? I'd kill you last. Yes, that's right, Matrix. You did. I lied. It's a, a, a re- recurring favorite of mine, actually, in 80s action. Well, in this case, 79 action, but yeah. Be sure to check out I our think, Commando episode. I also think it's a testament to his performance to make the most of a character that's not really, I wouldn't say it's underwritten, but it's he clearly saw something in the character and really, as as Dave said, like, um, brings home the sort of sniveling, it's it's evil from cowardice almost, and you, that's reinforced at the end especially, and just, per, yeah, and then finger, like, uh, points the finger at, uh, at Cleon being like, it was actually Cleon who, who uh, shot the shot the gun, because it was the warriors. Yeah, right. Every enunciation, like every, yeah, he really makes the most from the lines he's given, which I'll say is not the case for many others throughout the movie. Just, and I think it, some of the flat deliveries, especially from the warriors, adds to the comedic tone of some scenes. And I think, I think it's kind of a signature of the movie the way that each characters uh, and performers delivering their lines. I wouldn't say it's the best example of uh, acting in a performance, whereas David Patrick Kelly like definitely drives drives home like a performance. For sure, and an incredibly memorable, memorable and iconic one as well. And he's got some some gems later on that we'll definitely get to. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Christine you know, pointed out that Luther, you know, in the kind of chaos of who killed Cyrus, Luther blames the warriors. Uh, Cleon walks toward the middle of this chaos where, uh, to check on Cyrus, uh, Luther begins to scream, that's him, that's the guy who shot Cyrus. Another member of, that was terrible. <laughs> Another <laughs> member of the room. That was good. <laughs> uh, him, he shot Cyrus. <laughs> it's almost like a Crispy Glover thing. Yeah, that's You're a really totally good. totally right. Yes, nailed it. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. 
what an interesting movie that would be if Crispin Glover was Luther. <laughs> In the musical version that I'm I'm going to write, Crispin Glover will uh, be Luther. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Luther blaming the warriors, blaming Cleon. He denies it, but Luther continues to scream, charges at Cleon. He holds his own, but then um, the Germancy riffs. Gramercy, oh my God, I can't say this. Gramercy riffs, uh, who are martial arts experts, step in, bring them down, kick them, elbow them. They just Cleon. like elbow drop him to death, yeah. And he's dead. I, I think that's, you know, you don't presume it, but pretty clearly he's dead. Um, the other warriors make a break for it through a wooden fence, wind up in a cemetery as the rest of the police rush to the park. So everyone's trying to run away. And they take a head count and determine that everyone is there except for Cleon. Now, this is where we you know, really get to see Swan, played by Michael Beck, who really becomes you know, the main character, uh, who is the war chief, second in command after Cleon, and uh, states that they're going to the subway to try to catch the train back to Coney Island. Uh, we talked about him already a little bit. Uh, Ajax, played by James Remar, um, gives Swan some trouble and asks, who made you leader? Swan advises him to make his move, but the remaining members intervene, telling Ajax to calm down, urging everyone to stick together. Ajax backs down, and they make their way toward the subway, uh, worrying whether the truce is still on. Um, and I think it's one thing that I kind of noticed this go around is that they don't really know what's going on. They just fled from the scene. You know, there's no cell phones. They don't have any radios on them. And so that was kind of like a fun part that I didn't think about before is they don't really know what's going on. All they know is that they have to try to return home. They have to find the sea, find Coney Island and go home. And already we see some tensions forming within the group. And is this group going to stick it together? They'll try, but ultimately I think kind of unsuccessful in that. Any thoughts on sort of this escape or their, you know, kind of descent through New York, kind of this opening part of the movie? The the first group that they run into, they're in, like, what kind of vehicle are they in? But they're, like, coming at them from a bridge and, they're, they're, like, they're hanging off the vehicle, like, swinging chains. I, I was watching it and I was laughing. I was like, oh, gosh, this is terrifying. But, like, if they just got off the car they could have like easily caught every single one of the warriors and i was like just just throw the chain what are you doing do you just like not want to catch these guys um but something i i really really enjoyed was um the, their use of the radio and how certain songs signaled something and wh whoever the dj was she was perfect just nailed it this is one of my favorite aspects yeah. of the film is is this cutaway where every once in a while, it's almost like a public service announcement mm -hmm. kind of radio station for the gangs of New York. We only really get um, this hyper-cropped, super close-up of this microphone at pres presumably a radio station and a woman's lips just leering in and soothingly just kind of giving like the traffic report of the gangs throughout the city and updates while still kind of wishing all of the gangs well, it almost, it, it like, it rings to me a little bit like almost, it almost feels like maybe Spike Lee saw this movie and was like, say, and that's where we get Sam Jackson's thing and do the right thing. But it's, it's just a, such an amazing style, stylistically rendered. Like it, it's such a great shot every time with just 
her mouth coming in and giving this information to the microphone and that translating to us as the news over the radio. But uh, also conceptually that there is this like underground like radio station that is transmitting live information about gang dealings throughout the city to the gangs themselves uh, and playing like this one goes out to the warriors and stuff like that. It's just such an awesome, awesome detail of this world. And it adds to the mythic quality of the story. You've got this sort of omniscient narrator who's helping you as the viewer follow the thread, but is, as Dave and Sam were saying, kind of weighing in what's happening and also just spinning some great songs. And she's always like, I've got just the song for this scene <laughs> or like what else, what is about to come, come next. But yeah, that was also one of my favorite elements of the movie. Yeah. That, that's such a fun uh, conceit to have. And first thing I love to be brought up, this kind of adds to this mythic feel Greek chorus like um, definitely kind of tapping into some of these epic tales, you know, mythic sort of ideas. And that's one part that I really enjoy as well. And then we're also kind of introduced this idea that the riffs want the warriors alive, but the rogues don't for fear that they're going to reveal that Luther was the one who shot them. And so every once in a while we get to check in about where are the warriors, where are they coming from? Have they been apprehended? Uh, people giving them tips. So there's this fun, real kind of cat and mouse chase as they make their way through the city, trying to get on subways successfully, but then there is their, you know, they get on a subway after, you know, the, the skinheads, uh, the synopsis calls chases them down, but then there is fire, um, fire on the track. And so they have to get out. Um, the route takes them directly through the Bronx of a, and they pass a low level gang known as the orphans who did not attend the gathering at the park and apparently don't know of, uh, the contract out, you know, don't really know what's going on. Um, and after determining the orphans numbers to be at least 30 versus their eight Swan decides a diplomatic solution would be the best. Um, and then he brings Fox with him to meet the orphans leader played by Paul Greco, who's just looking real sad, real dirty, <laughs> real sweaty. And all the orphans are wearing these like green shirts and just like dirty jeans. They just, they're not a good looking crew. I hope they're doing all right. Um, they're a low level gang. They're not part of what's called the network, which is why they weren't invited to the gathering. But and you felt so offended. bad for them because they exactly they they were sad that they didn't get the message that this whole meetup was happening, and but they're still trying to posture and act tough, and that's what even made it more sad was that you're still trying to look uh, intimidating, even though all parties involved recognize that you are a lesser group. <laughs> Even to the point that one of them weighs somebody over being like, hey, you got that newspaper clipping? Yeah, check this out. We did this. That's like so pulling sad. something off of the fridge that like your mom put up there when you got like a good grade. And you're like, see, I'm I'm smart. I can I'm good. That was I, I love I love the scene so much. And then also, I love how too uh they they kind of, you know, um for the sake of like passage are kind of sucking up to them or like puffing them up, the orphans, um, <laughs> like saying like, oh man, you must be tough. Our, our social worker never told you about, or never mentioned uh, us to, you to us. So it's like, so you must be like, I don't know, the whole thing. Um, suggesting that they're like a minor gangs to the point that there's a social worker involved and stuff. It's so funny. And after they kind of butter them up, 
the warriors butter the orphans up. They're going to let them pass through the territory, no problem. However, the leader's girlfriend, Mercy, played by Deborah Van um, Valkenberg, uh, begins taunting him with really accurate chicken noises. Those are really good chicken noises she's making um, and cutting comments, cutting down their manhood, insulting them. Uh, and so he orders the warriors to remove their gang colors if they want to proceed through. Swan refuses to under no uncertain terms. Um, and the orphans leave while the warriors kind of march on. So this is where we meet Mercy, who's really the only woman in the film who has a substantial part. And so what are your thoughts on the introduction of really the main um, woman in the movie, the main female? I hated every single second she was on the screen. <laughs> um, I, and I was bummed about it too, because, you know, I love like a, a mean bitch, but I just couldn't get behind this character at all. Uh, I think she she does a good job with the role, but the role is uh, it's a tough it's a tough sell. She's just always getting dragged along. It's like she asks to come along and I think she brings a certain edge, you know, but like they're always grabbing her by the arm and like shoving her this way and that. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I was all I was all. I was I can't say I was very surprised by the character and her dynamic with the crew but yeah she was sort of like edgy but a little bit weepy eyed and being dragged along a lot yeah it feels very damsel in distress like I wish that we could have given her something to do or some way that some skill that she has like help the group survive I'm surprised that they didn't have her be like maybe a navigator type character or like someone who can help them navigate this part of the city. Um, I don't know. Like, I just felt like there's something there for her to do. And the script really does no favors, which I think is pretty unfortunate. And she does really just follow the warriors around or gets dragged around, which leads us to our next scene. Uh, Mercy's curious about the warriors. She tails them, gets caught by Ajax, grabs her, pretty aggressively threatens her. Um, she claims she wants some real action, not just really hanging out here in the Bronx with the orphans. Eventually we learn she, you know, she wants to travel, do these things. Uh, then the orphans show back up, packed, ready to rumble. Um, they throw some tough words, but Snow, uh, played by Brian Tyler, produces a Molotov cocktail, which Swan throws at the car near the orphans. Car explodes, warriors take off past the wreck. Uh, the orphans don't pursuit. And the warriors hightail to the next station with Mercy, uh, who seems determined to stick around. And then the DJ passes news of the orphans' defeat. Luther gets an update that the warriors are making their way through and that the cops are out to get every gang in the city. And when asked why he seems so happy about the situation, Luther responds, I'm having a good time, which I think sums up his character pretty effectively, or at least who he wants to be the, the, a really great little moment too with when it when they're getting that information where uh his his fellow um rogues are stealing candy from this newsstand and then finally it, and it's just another really hilarious over over overemphasized delivery from um from patrick kelly here uh the the newspaper woman saying um hey aren't you gonna pay for that and his just just so so much but it's perfect um also really love too how uh the riffs the the dominant gang that cyrus has been um has been 
representing and, and was killed. Um, and this new guy taking over, who's just like th- this, just dude, just wearing these like like great aviator sunglasses. Um, and the way that it's shot every time he gets information and updates about the warriors and they're tra- they're passing through the city is just like him fixed on either side of the screen, just staring straight ahead <laughs> as someone leans in from the side, like right next to his face to give him this information and then it peels away, just leaving him still standing there. Ah, it's such, ah, it's so great. It's just so visually so great because it just really illustrates, um, his power just like his influence as this unmoving fixed figure who's just staring ahead getting this information these updates while overseeing the situation in a pretty dominant sense because they're the biggest gang in the city yeah and those sunglasses reminded me of what's his name Lawrence Fishburne in the matrix Morpheus Morpheus yeah I was like oh what is this a different movie but yeah the way that they film some of this is really really incredible and it just makes things like feel more impactful in a lot of ways you're like oh shit like this is these are actually for real people like the 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 first scene I think we get of like the the riff like in in mass and they're all just in those orange like robes whatever they're yeah and the way that they like do the call and response, like who I would be terrified of them. And how they're all like lined up and like orderly, like, yeah, this gang, they mean business. They're not disorganized punks. They are out to kill. And the cinematography really illustrating their power and organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just incredible that like every scene, there's like a dozen things to talk about that are just really exciting and really awesome. Like just speaks to the strength of the direction cinematography so much about the warriors so the warriors are continuing trying to make their way out of the bronx uh the train at the 69th street station isn't moving incredibly frustrating uh police officers walk by uh the car and the warriors take off running they then split into three groups fox and mercy run down the platform a cop comes from behind one of the pillars tackles fox who yells at mercy to run away and in the struggle he gets tossed onto the tracks um, where he's killed by an oncoming train mercy runs in the other direction and looks like doesn't see does not see his death it's a pretty brutal way to go and this is a movie that is not precious with its characters it will put kill people put them through the ringer um so just the way like oh, yeah sort of like off-screen like i feel right. like i had remembered this movie being like more gruesome than it, it it's it's pretty breezy with its deaths i would say like you have the slow motion shot at the beginning uh but that or as in like the leader getting shot but then pretty much a lot of other more off-screen deaths although the getting shoved in front of the subway car you're not really gonna see that <laughs> and that's in slow-mo that's, too right uh, yeah that was I love a lot of, as I mentioned before, a lot of the not only scenes in the subway, but a lot of characters kind of always on the edge, whether it's the physical like ledge of the subway, you have characters walking right up along the uh, edge as it drops down to the rail. And then later on, you have Swan and Mercy walking on the tracks as trains are moving quickly by. And I Feels, it feels like the the actors are really in the t- tunnels while trains are just rolling by. And I think it wonderfully reinforces 
the danger of the space and environment. It's like, okay, yeah, they're, they're getting into fights, but at the same time, just constantly walking around the subway, they're always sort of on the edge of, of death or, you know, getting hit by a train or things like that. And I think it adds a nice, uh, a nice sort of tension to, to a lot of, uh, a lot of the scenes and they're underground and everything's dark and lights are constantly moving and flashing. Yeah. It's a movie with its own visual language for sure. And I love just how grimy and dirty it is too. Like nothing's polished. Everything feels very lived in because those were subway stations and those are, you know, subway cars. So it's really great shooting, great, you know, just like location and really immersing you into the world. And I think that, you know, the dirtiness comes into play near the end of the movie when they encounter, um, I guess, people coming together and, prom attire and so this kind of like upper class lower class kind of thing is happening which we can dive into later but mm-hmm. walking through the subway and the dirt just kind of reminded me uh, i connected that to the kind of scene toward the end for the first time rewatching it so that's one group fox is down uh, another group vermin um Kochi and rembrandt they managed to make it to the subway to Union Square, the agreed-upon meeting place. They had to split up. And the third group is Ajax, Swan, Snow, and Cowboy, um, who outrun the police, exit the station um, to find a bigger threat group of men in baseball uniforms. Uh, the baseball furies, pace, uh, painted faces, leisurely swinging baseball bats. Uh, the furies have been waiting for them, and the four warriors take off running down the street. Chase continues into Riverside Park. Um, Swan and Snow split to the side, leaving Ajax and Cowboy running forward. Um, the Furies fail to see the split, and then they follow Ajax and Cowboy. Uh, Swan and Snow circle back. Um, Cowboy can no longer run, so Ajax turns and faces his foes. Something that Ajax is very excited about because he's tired of running, doesn't want to be a wimp, wants to fight these gangs head on. And so turns, and you know, Swan comes up from the rear. There's a melee. Um, Ajax and Swan's fighting skills shine, so the synopsis says, um, and they succeed in wrestling control with bats and taking out all of the Furies. This is such a wonderful scene. And the baseball Furies are such an iconic part of this movie. They're, one of their members is on the very front of the poster, so definitely an incredibly iconic moment and a really, and a really cool fight scene. Like a great right. montage of uh, classic bathroom fight scenes. I would put Mission Impossible 6 in there. And the, the bathroom fight scene from Warriors would be in there, too. Just great use of tiles exploding, uh, stall doors explode. Wait. You're jumping this ahead is, a little. Shit. Oh, my God. I'm jumping ahead. Fuck. Delete all that. So this, again, is just, yeah, with, with the Furies in particular, really just, again, where it reminds me of uh, an attention to world-building detail that, uh, that reminds me of Miller, George Miller. Uh, and the Mad Max franchise, where it, there's just visual distinctions between these gangs, uh, really kind of j- just meaningfully illustrate without over explanation the diversity of the world that we're in. I literally lost my mind. I think what it, it's Swan and Ajax as they're running, and Ajax is like, I think we've lost them. And Swan's like, No, look. And then over the hills, you just see the first guy coming down I laughed out loud because it's just like so insane but terrifying that like what more can you do in that moment 
and especially because these guys are unarmed and they're fighting people baseball bats. Um, and so I think that also just these these guys have just been beat up all night and then have to fight you know these guys with bats. They're outnumbered uh, and take them out pretty handily and just beat the crap out of them with their own baseball bats. So now we see the return of the DJ uh, and she announces that the baseball furies have been defeated and disparages all the gangs for their poor performance. So some funny commentary from her. Uh, meanwhile, the other group has arrived at Union Square to wait for the others. They see a group of six young women giving them, as the synopsis says, come hither looks. Um, that's interesting. Uh, Kochi and Vermin can't believe their luck in finding uh, these women and they want to go to the party with them, uh, failing to realize that they have a hidden agenda. They're not all they are cracked up to be. Uh, Rembrandt, the youngest warrior, he senses danger. Uh, they go to this group's clubhouse and the leader played by Lisa Maurer identifies them as the Lizzie's an all girl gang and Woo! says they want to get down with the warriors because they've heard of their reputation. Um, thoughts on the Lizzie's and this, you know, part of the movie, what I kind of think of in the Odyssey as sort of um, the sirens, the siren call kind of leading, you know, the men astray. That's kind of, I think maybe what's being tapped into here, but thoughts on, uh, on the Lizzie's and this all, this all women gang. I'll ask you a question. Did anyone else think that the Lizzie's were probably uh, all gay? Cause I think, that's, yeah, I would, I, yeah, I think it's what's going on here. And I think that's, that's, you know, obviously strengthened by there. There's another part of the movie that's omitted later where Swan uh, is apparently on his own. And um, this was all cut, was uh, abducted by a group called the Dingoes, which were described in this online description that I discovered as, quote, uh, sadomasochistic homosexuals with Doverman pinchers. Um, so this, this whole thing that fortunately was dropped because it sounds very, you know, it, it's like we're several years away from Al Pacino's cruising. We don't need to get there quicker. Uh, but... But I, I think in a different way, like it's interesting that the Lizzie's are gay because they are uh, sort of baiting the warriors uh, through sexuality and, and bringing them back uh, to a place where like they're going to duff them up and turn them in, especially because there is that moment where it really takes time to observe the Lizzie's and like two of their members just sort of like centrally dancing or at least like, uh, you know, intimately dancing with themselves rather than with the group. So I think that that undertone is there, which I think is interesting. I also there's think like three cutaways to them dancing, and it's great because it's like subtle shaking. I I loved right. it. It was just like their hands are in the air, and they're just just so everly ever so slightly like shaking their shoulder. Yeah, I mean it was great. <laughs> it just feels like a really obvious lure. <laughs> I was like right surely you know what this is and like more power to them that the boys were just like mostly too stupid or too egotistical too interested to see through it and it's like you know sometimes people are the architects of their own tragedy <laughs> that certainly felt like it well, one of them is like a little bit or is definitely kind of ready to get out of there. I, I can't remember his name. Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Yeah. I think he's sort of like something's up, you know, we should probably get out of here. Or at least he's like, we're wasting time. We need to connect back with the rest of our crew. And this is this ultimately is a trap. 
where I think this shows true and shows the warriors that the entire, every gang in the city is out to get them, even if they weren't at Cyrus's meeting. So I think this also does a really good job of heightening the stakes that any room you're in could lead to your death. This is also happening at the same time as Ajax has like split off from his group and has found a woman strangely in a park and tries to like force her into sex and turns out she's a cop. Um, That felt out of complete left field, Um, but also like one, no, you shouldn't do that ever. Two, like that also felt like kind of an obvious trap. And I like his character was just absolutely disgusting this whole time. So like when that happened, I was like, good, (laughs) good. It feels necessary that he's removed from the crew of that that character, moral character weakness, mm-hmm. because the whole time he's he, I mean, he's we haven't talked about it yet. He's dropping F-bombs left and right in this movie and really enunciating each one in a way that it's it's contextually and dramatically clear that it is homophobia, not casual uh, use of the term, which isn't great either. But. At any rate, yeah, and he's also, he's the, it's something we said in our, one of our first episodes when the Warriors came up, and we, Tori, Connor, and uh, I agreed on it. He's the rapiest warrior. Um, so to have him, uh, have that that character flaw be the pitfall from which he's removed from the scenario via this sting is, I think, interesting, uh, albeit, yeah, Sam, as you've said, kind of transparent and expected, but uh, also probably a good move because though I love James Remar, it's probably best that we don't get more of this character. I agree with that. And I think the fact, like the tone of the movie does have this mythic comic booky feel. So it doesn't really feel too out of place. Like this person got like karmic uh, retribution for like their behavior. And like, of course, like, you know, his own hubris would cause him to fall for this incredibly obvious trap um, with this woman sitting at the bench, then handcuffs him. Pretty impressive that he drags the bench around. And then well, apparently... Was... Oh, were you going to say it? Go ahead. I, I was going to say it. So um, they interviewed, behind the scenes, they interviewed hundreds of people for all the, you know, for roles after roles, and they wanted to keep it within New York, the you know, the acting base. And so when he was reading for, when James Remar was reading for this part of Ajax, it was the scene that he was reading when he's talking to the woman on the bench and he got so into it and like, just really put his all into the performance that he lifted up this apparently like 200 pound conference table desk, like pretending like that was the bench. And uh, apparently that sold, that sold the producers and the, you know, the director writer that, Oh, this is our guy. This is our Ajax. He can bring this intensity to this performance. God, I love James Rumar so much. (laughs) Watching this uh, for the podcast is the first time I kind of clicked that it was James Remar in this role, a young James Remar, which is kind of cool. So Ajax is cut out. He's done. Um, Some of the members try to go back. You know, they leave Ajax, say, okay, well, we got to keep going. Then they have a moment with Swan. We're like, okay, well, we really should try to help him. But for Ajax, it's too late. He's gone. And they, they go back to the subway station where Swan finds Mercy still hanging around. Um, Another cop is there. They go into the tunnel, which we talked about. They're holed up in an underpass off the tracks. Um, Mercy comes on the swan and he insults her. I don't quite know how I feel about this scene. Um, Saying that he wants her to find something better. Mercy declares that swan isn't any better than her. And they continue along to Union Square. Um, The punks 
whose leaders wear roller skates, spot swan on the subway platform and hang around waiting for their chance. So I think this is a good moment to kind of talk about how do we feel about Swan and Mercy? This is sort of a lot of time in the movie is kind of spent on these two characters. Um, so what are your thoughts on their interactions kind of, I think, continuing on our Mercy conversation from earlier? I feel like it's sort of like a shoehorned in love story. You know, it's like, well, we got to have some sort of like love story for people to get invested in. And I guess I wasn't surprised by it. So I, I didn't really think much of it enough to like be like, I hate this or I love this. I was like this. I feel like this is to be expected of the era and just because a movie thinks it needs some sort of love plot. As I said before, what I really loved about this scene was not so much the dialogue, but they're literally standing in the subway tunnel as trains are passing by. I was paying more attention to, oh my God, they're going to get hit than the sort of love platitudes that they're exchanging. Well, but it's, it's, I think it's delving into a little bit of Mercy's character. You know, she like wants wants to get out of where she's from and she might see being with a warrior as a way to explore the city, get out of what she's used to. And she sees adventure and excitement. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was paying more attention to the subway than I really was. (laughs) It's kind of like an awkward reluctance though, on Swan's part where he's like kind of trashing her the whole time. To sort of like nagging her in this situation, you know, um, just kind of doing the whole like, I don't like the way you live your life, says, you know, this guy who is running across town in a vest trying not to be killed. So like, well, she's got some good retort. I mean, I think the performance does, yeah. that uh, uh, the uh, I don't remember her name, who's playing Mercy, but I think she gives some force because she she meets him with what do you mean? the way I live my life or like, what are you talking about the way I live my life? She calls him out on some of the stuff mm-hmm. that he says, but the dialogue seems very of era, you know, <laughs> 1979. So after this uh, subway scene, they make it to union square where they meet up with the rest of the remaining warriors. And here's where the punks kind of come involved. They see they're being followed so they try to lead the punks into the men's room. They hide in the stalls and ambush the punks who once again are wearing roller skates. Um, and they ambush them with rubber band spray paint. Battle ensues. Mercy even joins. Uh, and they handily defeat uh, the punks. And so, Christine, what are your thoughts on this epic bathroom battle? Well, I loved this scene so much. <laughs> and uh, I must, I'll just roll with it. It made me think of the bathroom fight scene in uh, Mission Impossible 6 and the great use of tiles exploding, mirrors breaking, like people getting thrown into mirrors, bathroom stalls getting busted apart. And it, yeah, it's going to go on my short but to uh, to be expanded list of great fight bathroom scenes. It's really well edited too. It's it's the only scene I believe that they shot in in a studio. Um, the rest was shot on location throughout New York and shot interestingly enough between the hours of uh, midnight and eight a.m. Um, for like the entirety of the shoot, uh, and it really caused like a stir in the local neighborhood to the point that at one point they were filming under a tower block and were apparently pissed on. 
because of the noise they were creating. All this, all this stuff about New York kind of coming at this movie as it's being made. But um, yeah, the 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 editing of this fight scene and the editing of the fights and and film throughout is so stylish. You know, you have the camera whipping around in these broad swings for shot transitions. You have occasional but not overutilized slow-mo. So it's all very tasteful and and creative and like unique and lively. And I can't say of how many fights I've seen where people are on roller skates, just brawling it out. Yeah, try throwing a punch on roller skates. Good luck. (laughs) The outfit of the overalls and the striped shirts and they're just like a bunch of bros like (laughs) haven't slept in a day and yeah it's great there's a lot of 70s hair in this movie and but i feel like the punks have the most unified collection of big 70s man hair with the punks defeated cut back to the rift's headquarters where their leaders told that there is a new witness you saw who really shot cyrus and so we then cut to the six remaining warriors and Mercy boarding the final train home from Union Square. Uh, this is where we see two young couples in evening dress coming from prom. And there's a really great contrast between Swan and Mercy. They're dirty, beat up. And, you know, as the kind of the well-to-do couples kind of eye them up and down. And I just think this is a really great, quiet, like a great example of a quiet moment before leading to your kind of like third act before leading to your big finale. And I think just really puts into perspective how their lives are just not normal. Like this is not how the rest of society lives. And it's, and this is, I think very intentional with the film was to depict people who have to resort to gang living because there's no other way of life for them. They don't have access to money. They don't have access to resources. I don't think the movie hits on that idea too much, but that was certainly, um, in the development process, at least what I was seeing in behind the scenes kind of interviews, like this is what the group, you know, the writers were thinking about um, of why these characters and kind of what's going on with them. Yeah. I think I always found that to be a failing of this movie because it does feel like it's shoehorning in a kind of like, uh, you know, uh, a dichotomy or juxtaposition between two different lifestyles. Obviously you have these teens that are casually like, going about coming home for prom and they're riding the subway as are these people that are like, you know, embattled gang members. Um, And I always thought that that was a bit of a weakness to the film because like, what are they going for? Is it like privilege versus property? Is it quote, clean living society versus like the rough and tumble because the film doesn't explore that. But what I think now in hindsight is interesting about this movie is that it doesn't explore that at all outside of that glimpse. And I think that, that makes it, you know, an underdeveloped idea in its visual representation, perhaps. But it it, it drew, drew my attention to the fact that we don't learn anything about the world that this is in outside of the fact that it is geographically New York and everyone that we experience are people that are tangentially connected to these gangs. So it does keep the world at bay. And even we don't know anything about really about the police themselves as they're pursuing all of this. So it is so insular that I think that distance is interesting in a way that isn't probably what they were going for, but it draws my attention to how interesting it is that this movie is so singularly focused as far as uh, our viewpoint of this world. That's It's so interesting to hear you both talk about this scene in that way, because that's not how I read it at all. To me, it felt like a domestic violence, domestic abuse, like recognizing because, you know, the, the, 
the couples are specifically looking at mercy and a lot of that dirt almost looks like bruises. And like, I didn't really feel good about that scene as I was watching it because it is like, well, what is it doing in here? Is this just for shock value? Is this just showing like this life sucks or whatever? So it's, it's interesting to me that it's actually supposed to be poverty versus privilege. Well, I don't know what they were going for. I didn't get that read from it, but uh, I guess I got more the 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 other thing. Uh, in either case, I feel it's underdeveloped. I just I, I I appreciate the scene as interesting in pointing out how insular the perspective of the story is. But yeah, I think regardless of what it's going for, outside of that nugget that I've salvaged from it, is a bad scene or an underdeveloped idea. In either regard, because if that is what it's going for, Sam, that I think it's underregarded, uh, underbaked in that in that regard too. So, that's one thing I love about doing a movie podcast is like hearing different perspectives that I didn't think about. Like that's so awesome. And I'm not really quite sure what this team was trying to say. I the kind of what I was referencing was like the overall approach and idea of the movie and like why they were drawn to these characters. So, not quite sure exactly what that scene's about, but it was note, you know this is the first time watching the Warriors where that scene kind of maybe take pause and sort of think about maybe bigger themes of what we're going on. Albeit definitely could have been maybe teased out more throughout the film. So now we are winding down to the end of the Warriors. They have made it back home to Coney Island. Um, one of the couples like drops their corsage on the train and Swan picks it up and gives it to Mercy saying, I don't like things going to waste. It's a weird moment. I just had to bring it up. I didn't. I, I just have no idea what this line's about. Yeah, Sam, the gagging face. Lines. Yeah, I was like, couldn't that have, like, wouldn't that be like a nice silent moment to like give it to her or like try to give her something nice? I, I don't know. It's a weird. Even I just had to she bring just it like up rolls her eyes slightly and she still accepts it. Like, yeah, you, you say more with not saying anything than I just hate to see things go to waste. <laughs> this movie wants to have a line for everything. And like you can tell that by everything that a character says to another character. <laughs> like, as I said before, sometimes just super flat delivery, other times just too much. But it's like these words shall be spoken because they're in a script. And I think that was an instance of they aren't going for subtlety or a quiet moment. Subtlety is not in the Warriors uh, wheelhouse. Uh, all right. So. Coney Island, they're home. They see the ocean. It's a big theme in seeing the ocean is a really big theme in Xenophon's um, Anabasis, which is partially, you know, what inspired the warriors, basically this legion of Greek salt, Greek mercenaries who are trapped in Persia and fight tooth and nail. And they believe if we get all the way to the ocean, then we'll be home. So definitely some inspiration from there. I appreciated that kind of that line, that moment there. So the Warriors and Mercy walk through deserted Coney Island. What a great just set piece to just this, what looks to be like an abandoned like amusement park, um, only to real and they realize that Luther and the Rogues have been following them in this amazing hearse. Uh, and with no time to contact other members that come to their defense, they take shelter under a dock. They, I love the scene of like, they take pipes off of walls and like, boards and really trying to arm themselves with whatever Coney Island can provide them in the moment because it is just them up against the rogues. Uh, so Swan, he also has a switchblade, which he took back from the punk leader. Others armed themselves. And then 
So kind of, yeah, they're armed, they're ready to go. Then Luther comes around, makes the ominous rattling sound with bottles and chants. Warriors come out to play. Warriors come out to play. And what a creepy sound, like this bottle's, what a strange like gesture, a strange character choice. Like it's not strange in a bad way, just like so very unsettling. And apparently this, um, yeah, this line was improvised by Luther who was inspired by, I guess his neighbor from what I was reading, who would like taunt him. It's beautiful. I mean, you don't, you don't see him clanking the bottles together uh, until like maybe 15 seconds maybe even 20 seconds into the repetition of these of the the clanking and it's i don't know it sounded beautiful to me and then obviously it's sinister and terrifying when you see him in this in this car with the broken bottles around his fingers ringing or like clinking them together but um i don't know that i thought that was a such a great little sound design moment and it's improvised to the degree that uh, not only Connor, as you mentioned, was it like something that his his na- bullying neighbor used to taunt him with as an actor, David Patrick Kelly. But the scene wasn't working. So uh, while they were on a break, uh, David Patrick Kelly happened to be wandering underneath the uh, the Coney Island boardwalk and found a couple of bottles and decided that that would be cool if he clanked them together. So it's not even like a production design thing. That was just com- it, not only the line, but the action is entirely organic to the actor. That's and really it's maybe cool. the most iconic moment in the film. Oh, for sure. And I, I found it just very unsettling and, you know, uh, the bells of impending doom. And so Swan leads his crew with mercy out to the beach. They want to drag the rogues out there. Um, finally, um, you know, they get face to face. Swan asks Luther why he killed Cyrus, to which Luther replies, no reason. I just I like, like I just doing things like that. <laughs> Which in so many other movies could be so cringy and terrible, but it just works so well in this kind of like heightened world that the Warriors is in and from what we've seen from Luther um, throughout. And it's such a great moment. Um, They want to do like a one-on-one fight. Luther pulls a gun on Swan. And so, you know, basically, you know, he's going to kill him. Like, great, we'll do one-on-one. I have a gun. You have a switchblade. Um, When Luther pulls the gun on Swan, uh, Swan flicks his switchblade into Luther's wrist disarming him and we see what a little bitch luther is (laughs) screaming and crying and it's right at this moment that the riffs appear in full force um ready to take retribution and it's in this moment too where uh before he gets disarmed where luther confesses you know he confesses to killing cyrus the riffs hear this and this really spells doom for luther uh, Swan asks whether the Rifts are still looking for the warriors, to which their leader replies, looking at Luther, that they found what they're looking for. Um, he praises the warriors as good, real good, and makes an exit path for them, which felt, I didn't quite think about this before, but their exit path as they file away to you know, make room felt incredibly ominous, especially as it closes back in on the roads, um, like these like gates closing, just as... Yeah, that symbol, you know, that just imagery, I think, really hit me this time. And they file out uh, to the screams of Luther's death. 
Well, that felt very stage play, like uh, a group of people sort of descending upon Luther and then him getting swallowed up by body, like just bodies closing in and then a scream and really another off off screen death, but like suggestive of like, he's going to get torn to shreds. Uh, And so I thought of quite a fitting and effective end to his career and life. Also great too that like it's it's you know it's the rogues and the warriors on the beach and they're in relatively equal numbers and they're just like you know their back is to the ocean and they're just, you know facing each other and then all of a sudden they turn around and there's like 70 rifts that are just like hey we snuck up on you apparently all 70 of us and so fast I, they surround them well sand you could, you could probably well no that sand is probably going to crunch but yeah it definitely as a visual spectacle looked really really cool and then you see the sun or the like early, early morning sunrise in the back. And that also is beautiful with the like hues of pink and oranges. Cause you've pretty much been, everything has been wet and at night, which looked really cool. But then you finally see the, see the sunrise, which is, is beautiful too on the beach. And then we also get the return of the DJ who announces that the alert is canceled. The warriors, you know, they can live at peace. Um, and she plays them out and we see, I guess, like they're jumping you know, out of the waves. It's a very like happy ending as the credits roll of where these, there's been so much death and carnage, even just right behind them. <laughs> the <beach. laughs> um, but the warriors have mostly remained intact and they live to fight another day. So that is 1979's the warriors pretty thorough rundown. Um, any sort of, Final thoughts on the film or characters or moments anybody else wanted to touch on? Uh, I, I think this movie totally rules. Uh, I love, uh, as we've alluded to a lot of times, like the visual stylization and um, uh, visual storytelling and momentum and pacing of the film. I think it's stylistically a masterpiece that that does have its own uh, visual vocabulary that's really, really exciting. And also one one little uh, detail, one production detail that I uncovered in some of my research was that uh, while making the film, they did pay an actual gang called the Mongrels $500 a day to guard their trucks. There are some really great, uh, if you're interested in the Warriors, there are some really great behind the scenes stories about their efforts to film and scout New York um, and hire in New York. So definitely recommend there's some i think there's like a hour documentary that's out there i watched some of that lots of stories so there's a whole tapestry of of um, stories to to uncover if you're interested one little trivia thing i wanted to mention was as a as a person who you know follows the box office and enjoys talking about the numbers warriors is pretty you know it's it's a hit it's not certainly not a flop um apparently it was very successful on opening weekend but apparently word of mouth was getting around that these gangs were like real life gangs were interested in seeing the movie and would see rival gangs at the same screening. And so fights and violence would break out at these theaters. Mm -hmm. And so they got a lot of people to not, you know, to not want to go out and see the movie. Like apparently (laughs) violence at the theaters were a real issue um, with the warriors in 1979, which I thought was kind of interesting. And of course it's gone on to become a, a cult classic and, end up having a pretty decent box office. I just thought that was a, a funny theatrical tidbit. There's also some sort of theat- scroll on the uh, the poster that illustrated like 
a, a, a rising street gangs of like hundred thousand and they're coming for you or whatever the fuck. Um, and it, it sketched people out so much that it was pulled from several theaters. But also, strangely enough, Ronald Reagan, supposedly a big fan of the movie, even co- going so far as to call uh, Michael Beck, the uh, actor playing Swan, to tell him that he screened it at Camp David and really loved it. Well, if it has Reagan's approval, then can't go wrong, right? Am I right? Mm. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Butter Crew, for chatting about and providing insightful commentary on The Warriors. Very excited. I was very excited to talk about it. Really loved our discussions. Uh, be sure to check out other podcasts on the Movie John Podcast Network. Um, special shout out to Killer Bees. Um, Tori and her partner Garrett talking about B-movie actors, not from the Jerry Seinfeld B-movie, but B-movie actors. Um, and Sam, every time I say that, just shakes her head. <laughs> it's not um, about bees! It's about movies! So there's many wonderful podcasts, including an F1, Formula One racing podcast that's on there um, that I always am really fascinated by. So be sure to check out our sibling podcast on the Movie John Podcast Network. Uh, Be sure to email us at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram as butterwiththat and butterwiththat1 on Twitter. Have a good whatever. Have a wonderful whatever. Uh, Let us know what you thought about this episode and what you think of the Warriors. Can you dig it?